Well, welcome back once again. Usually, and uh, I think many people have enjoyed the fact that I've been outside with some of my sermons and trying to, uh, to liven up and be a little light and see the outside. Unfortunately, because of smoke, I'm inside just like you are. Uh, it, man, this year we have been inside more because we've had to be than almost any other time that I can remember, except maybe when I was a kid and it was raining or thunderstorming, something like that. And mom said, no, you can't. Why? Now I'm an adult and I can't go outside, it seems. Man, it's a good thing. I really love my family and they put up with me very admirably, I must say. So we are all surviving okay, but I hope you are too. Uh, I do pray that you are not too affected by the smoke and that the people around you that you love are not too affected by the smoke. And we can pray that it will clear up soon, that the fires will be put out and we can move into our wonderful rainy season. Man, the rainy season in Oregon will look so much better than normal after this season, won't it? Last year, uh, just a quick confession. Uh, I think I annoyed Amy because almost every day during the winter, I would wake up and go, oh, look, it's raining. I was still adjusting to the rainy season once again. I will, you can hold me accountable with God and my wife and everyone watching this is my witness. I will not do that at all this year because I will remember back to this time and be grateful for the rain. I will do that. <laughs> we, in all seriousness, though, we do pray that, uh, if you've been affected that uh, by the wildfires or had to relocate, that you let us know that we would love to help in some way. If you know someone that we can help, uh, please let us know. We do plan, while we haven't been too active in the initial stages, we do plan to look a little farther ahead uh, in this disaster uh, to those who will need help, not just initially, but farther down the line. So please feel free to keep looking for updates on our websites and Facebook uh, sites as far as that goes. But today, we are continuing our sermon series on the end times church and i explained a little bit last week about what that meant uh that's a loaded term for a lot of people and that and there's a reason actually i, I titled it that not just because it's somewhat what i'm i will admit it's a little bit of a bait and switch because i titled that knowing that for many people that's a whoa that's a provocative thing uh, because many people don't really know what that means. I explained a little bit about that last week. Of course, we can always take it another way. The story goes, and thank you, Josh Dusman, for this. The story goes that um, a priest, uh, a minister and his associate minister were standing at the edge of a bridge uh, with two signs saying, The end is near. Turn yourself around before it's too late. Well, a driver came by and slowed down and rode down the wind and said, You religious nuts, you leave us alone and let us do what we want. Well, he sped off and just a minute later, they heard a crash. And one minister turned and a splash. And one minister turned the other and said, Do you think we should replace these signs with just two simple signs that say the road is, uh, the bridge is out? I messed that up a little bit, but hopefully you get the point. Many people don't exactly know what they mean uh, when we talk about the end or the end times. We did explain a little bit that last week, and I'll rehash that in just a second. Of course, I also came across this one this week, which I really enjoyed about the end. Um, one person saying, the end is near, and the other person saying, yes, but what are your goals? <laughs> you can interpret that a couple ways, whether you know the ends are the means, um, or uh, or what are your goals down at the end is near? I mean, I, I don't know why. That struck me in a couple of different ways, and I appreciated that, to be sure. Um, last week, though, we did talk about a couple of important things when it comes to the end times. We talked about how 
Scripture defines end times as every day, and this is from Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, every day this side of the cross, in these last days since Jesus Christ, Hebrews says. And we get that in the sense that Jesus also proclaimed himself. We get this actually from the parable of the vineyard workers uh, and, the vine- and, and the parable of the vineyard, actually, that we just talked about in the last sermon series I read this week, and that made sense. Uh, we talked about how Jesus himself really fulfilled the Old Testament prophetic uh, tradition And basically said, this me, I, this sign of who I am and what I'm doing for you is the ultimate sign. So when we read in scripture that Jesus died once for all, um, one sacrifice for all, we're not just talking about it in in a salvific or in atonement or in a sanctification sense, but we're talking also about prophetic sense. We're talking about the fact that Jesus' death and then his resurrection, more, this is Paul from 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to go read, that signifies the ultimate sign for the age, the ages of what God is doing, uh, has done, is doing, and will do. So what does that mean for us? And that's what this sermon series is all about. Uh, What it means to be a church in the end times, meaning those times since Jesus' resurrection, since the ultimate sign, in whatever times we happen to find ourselves. And we talked a little bit last week about how interpreting some of these events, especially a lot of them in this year, uh, can really lead some weird, not very good places. And I'll touch on that a little bit as well this sermon. We talked about a couple things specifically, though, that we take away from this. We looked at John 9, we looked at John 11, uh, and we talked about three specific things that are a challenge for us to be in this time. Number one is a present church, meaning a present with the people in these times of hardship. Um, Number two, we talked about the fact that God is revealed in these present times. Uh, Whatever's going on, he can be revealed within them. We're not looking necessarily for God to to come and and change everything or for God to suddenly show up. What are you going to do with this God? No, no, no. God is working in and through and within these events that are around us, which leads us then to the number three we talked about last week with the puzzle piece picture, is that God has always worked in and through a partnership with his people. And we ended last week by saying that, well, instead of waiting for God to show up or wondering what God is going to do, perhaps we ought to be more wondering, hmm, what should I be doing? Or rather, what God could do through what I what I could do that would then be present in the world, that would show the world and manifest God who he is and spread his light, spread his kingdom, spread his authority, all those things. So we, that's how we kind of roped uh, everything around in the first sermon series of first sermon of this series. Those little two-letter words in there are important. Today we're going to expound on that, and once again, I want to remind you that this series is really, is truly, more than other sermon series I've done, truly four parts. Uh, There are four small parts here, so if at any point before the end, and even after the end, you may be like, well, that that was it. We're building here, and so we're putting a piece of the puzzle, we're putting a piece of the foundation on, uh, and so today... We're going to look at a specific thing that I hope that we hold dear as not only a part of who we are as a church, not only part of who we are as Christians, not only part of what we do because God says, but I I, I hope we hold dear because we recognize the value and the necessity of it. One of the things which I have started to wonder slash realize 
half from my own interpretation and, and looking at things and also of, of talking with people is that when we talk about trusting in God, when we really talk about faith, when we talk about our role in that faith, and more specifically when we talk about, let's talk about bad things, okay? When we talk about COVID, when we talk about wildfires, when we talk about, we just had the uh, anniversary of September 11th on Friday. When we talk about these things and we assign motive to God, you hear what a loaded statement that is, first of all, and I'll explain that in the next, I'll get into that throughout the next three series, next sermons of the series. Grammar, vocab, whatever. <laughs> when we assign motive to God, or we look for motive in God's actions, or we look for reason, we look for the why in these things, I'm realizing, and maybe I'm wrong, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, and feel free to always do that, by the way. I'm realizing that that has less to do with the fact that we trust in God and have faith in God versus how we interpret what it means that God is sovereign. What I mean by that is that we Christians, I know, and I have never met a Christian who doesn't believe this. In fact, I would argue that maybe if you didn't think this, it would not really make you a Christian. All Christians believe that God is sovereign, meaning he has ultimate power and ultimate control. Oops, I need to stay this close, otherwise the camera is going to go out of focus. He has ultimate control and ultimate power and, 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 and omnipresent and omni-everything. Omni and I think that us assigning motive and us assigning reasons are trying to make sense of the fact that sometimes crazy, ridiculous, horrible things can happen while God is still in control of things ultimately. And we have a hard time reconciling those things. We have a hard time trying to understand why there is this horrible thing in front of us or this thing which is affecting so many people and God doesn't act. God chooses not to act. God acts in a way that we wouldn't have. And so we try to manifest in our own understanding. Now, this is a deep thing to start out with. I apologize. We try to manifest in our own understanding God's sovereignty in that moment. Maybe you can relate with that. Have you ever had a moment in your life where something bad has happened and you have immediately said, Oh, this will be good in in a little bit. And maybe it wasn't ever good, or you just, you still don't know why. See, I think that's a lot behind trying to explain our relationship with God and his relationship with the world. I think that explains a lot of the reasons that theology can get conflated with other things. And why we don't really necessarily believe that money will save us or or things will save us, but yet we want to explain God working and the bad things and good. We want to everything to make sense, and I think that's behind a lot of why we sometimes conflate God's sovereignty with money and economics, and maybe that's why the prosperity gospel has gotten so big. Well, we can't understand a lot of things in God's in this world, and so if you just try really hard and have a lot of faith, God will manifest itself Himself through you making a lot of money and you being very rich. Or, and at the risk of meddling, 
I'm going to say it anyway, or why we care so much about things as in the occupant of the White House and everything that goes into that. We want to see God's sovereignty, God's control explicitly manifest in front of us. And so if there is a quote-unquote, whatever you define this as, Christian in the White House, that's God's making known, being made real, God being made manifest, God's will being done. For example, maybe in the policies, if not the candidate or the or the president himself, um, maybe in the policies that Congress makes or perhaps the laws that are ratified in this country or uphold, upheld by the Supreme Court. I could even go so far as to say America itself, meaning that there's a theology out there, which I don't want to get too deep into, and I'm, I've probably already you know, gotten some people mad at me just by putting these four pictures up, more or less three out of the four, or one of the four, but America itself being the, the salvation and the light of the world, the New Jerusalem. The Bible doesn't say anything about that, let's be honest. So I think that part of why we do that is to try to make sense of God's sovereignty in this world which seems to be so without God. The problem with that, and there is a big problem with that, the problem with that is that the New Testament and other things like God and Jesus and the Spirit, but specifically the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't leave any room outside of one thing as the center, as the filter, and as the foundation for interpreting anything else, especially God's sovereignty. Now, I may be a bit predictable, but as you may imagine, that one thing is Jesus Christ. That one thing is Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death and resurrection. That one thing and the moment that we take anything else and try to interpret God's sovereignty, God's actions, God's motives, eschatology, salvation, anything, anything at all, even a little bit in place of Jesus, we get off base and go weird places real fast. And now I don't think we mean to do it all the time, but we do. And it comes down once again, as I talked a little bit last week about, to expectation. Let me ask you the question, what does it mean that God is sovereign? What does it mean to you? I don't like usually asking that question because I don't believe that especially Bible should be subjective like that. What does this text mean to you? It doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what it means. In this case, I think this question matters. What does God's sovereignty mean to you? What does it mean to you that God is sovereign, meaning ultimate over this world? What does it mean to you? But it doesn't always look like it. And maybe the better question is, how do we reconcile our expectation with what we see in front of us, with what happened 2,000 years ago? Well, we start 2,000 years ago because the same problem was the problem of the apostles, the disciples, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, everyone who was around Jesus. You see, they saw Jesus inaugurating the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is now here, Jesus proclaims. And what does that look like? 
not coming in power and glory and sweeping away Israel's enemies, although he did, not restoring Israel to the most powerful uh, nation on earth, which maybe arguably, from a certain perspective, he did. What did it look like? Well, it looked a lot like Jesus' life. It looked like healing leper, touching him, seeking him out, drawing him in when he had been outcast. It looked like celebrating parties with sinners, being around, as I've talked about in the parables, being around and, and celebrating and having joy and including those who were outcasts of society for multiple reasons. It looked like announcing forgiveness to those who needed it the most, but yet were given it the least, the poor, the widows, the women, the um, outcasts, the foreigners, the aliens, announcing forgiveness. John 8, the adulterous woman, and was ready to stone her, regardless of the of the setup of it. And Jesus says, no one condemn you, nor will I condemn you. That was not what they expected the kingdom to look like, pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem was supposed to be the light. Jerusalem was the city on the hill. Was Jerusalem, this is David's city. This is the city on the hill. This is, this is the light to all the nations. And Jesus says, no, it's not about all the other nations. It's about you, Jerusalem, and about how God will weep when he judges you. But you have been judged. Not what they expected. God's sovereignty was about breaking the bread even while he was basically being betrayed. The kingdom and sovereignty was like Jesus hanging on the cross and God's sovereignty looks like Jesus appearing as a resurrected body to inaugurate power over death. Now look at these for a minute. If you were a Jew in the first century, none of these would have been what you would have imagined God's sovereignty to look like. The question for us then is what did these look like in your life? Both in the sense of what maybe do they look like that you d never expected or don't expect? And what do these look like in your life as far as being active? We don't exactly have a whole bunch of lepers around. Maybe you don't seek out the most evil people <laughs> that you know. Maybe you can't go around and pronounce forgiveness to people, but what do these things look like in your life? And I actually do want you, I haven't done this for a while, I actually do want you to take two minutes and actually discuss these things with whoever you're with, with your cat, with your spouse, with your kids, with your goldfish, with God. And just dwell a moment on these and really reflect on what this looks like, what these look like in your life. And we'll come back around in just a minute and go on. Two minutes.
So it may follow that if those things were the thing which uh, weren't expected and perhaps still aren't expected to a very large extent, we start to wonder then, all right, if that's what God's sovereignty looks like, if that's how God is displaying who he is and he's in control of the world, and this is something I hope we all realize as well, maybe the people who are called to partner with God are to be a little different than expected too. It wasn't ever supposed to be the kings, and although Jesus was, and the princes and the people of power. Jesus came, in essence, to turn power the other way around. Instead of working through the powerful and the rich and the influential, God says, no, 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 we're going to start a completely different spot. And that's actually how Jesus begins, if you've realized, hopefully you have, the Sermon on the Mount. You see, when he begins by the blessed statements, he's not talking about an ethical way of living. He's not just talking, although you could, you could take some stuff from that. He's not just talking about a certain way of living. He is saying that these, these kinds of people, these kinds of people, these kinds of people are the ones through which God's kingdom will work. These kinds of people are the ones through which God will partner with. These kinds of people are the ones by which God's kingdom will become known and spread. Let's explore it just for a little bit. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit does not mean to be downtrodden, but basically means not to think of yourself more highly than you ought. Thus are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They know what it means to need comfort and the power of comfort. Thus are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Not the ones who exert their power, not the ones who try to take over, but blessed are the ones who constrain themselves and who know when to exert their power. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and implied in this is not their own righteousness, but the righteousness of what? Of God. For they shall be satisfied. The righteousness, the right relationship with God. Oh, what a wonderful thing to hunger and thirst. We could spend a month on just each of these sayings very easily. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. It reminds me of the Jesus and anointing the, the, the woman, and him basically saying, those who have much to be forgiven, know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and I'm massacring this, but those who have much to forgive know the power and blessing of that mercy and forgiveness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed who are those who will be able to see God in every aspect, even in the things that usually corrupt. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers, the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Peacekeeping, this is, this is one I could spend a long time on. Peacekeeping is keeping everything as is, the status quo, keeping everyone happy, keeping everyone not in conflict. Peacemaking, however, is taking an active role in what's going on and bringing it to a better conclusion. There's a huge difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping. Jesus Christ came into our world to make peace between us and God, not just to keep the peace. Big difference. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for those of the kingdom of heaven. Self-explanatory. Those are blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven so they can persecute the prophets who will before you. We talked a little bit on Wednesday about the apostles' response in Acts about when they were persecuted that they didn't just go, wow, hey, hey. They counted themselves worthy of the privilege and that should be a response as well whenever people buck up against what we're doing. Not in a haughty way, but we should be saying, yes, it's a privilege to be conflicted against from the world who don't understand. Those are the kinds of people through which the kingdom will flow 
and become manifest and spread, and God will partner with and work. So what does that look like? I want to close, and and I'm really just going to close with this because we're going to take this and expound it and connect it with several other texts next week. I hate to always be the guy that says, wait till next week, wait till next week, but really, wait till next week. (laughs) Really, we're going to close with this because this is the jumping off point to what's next, but this is integral, integral or integral, to that jumping off. And it's a text you've heard quite often. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Now, there's a couple things. I mean, we, you have heard, I'm sure, many sermons on the Lord's Prayer. And I've even preached a few in my time here. What does this tell us about how to approach life? (laughs) What does this tell us about how to approach these times of hardship and tribulation, these times of strife in the end times, which is every day since Jesus, remember? This actually tells us a lot about the church's main vocation in the world post-Jesus. It tells us a surprising amount, as a matter of fact, and we're not going to have time to break it all down in this sermon. As we know, Jesus, when asked, hey, teach us to pray, and most likely that was the disciples asking, hey, teach us a prayer that we can pray so that people know that we're following you. He said, pray in this way. And it's not a prayer that necessarily is meant to be wrote or repeated exactly, although it's not a bad thing. That takes about 14 seconds to pray if you just read it through. But it's the principles behind what Jesus is saying, which are so incredibly powerful. And I've broken it up more or less into three sections that I want to dwell on and I want to jump off from uh, starting next week. The first section, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does a church do whenever there are things going on beyond our control in which we may question God's sovereignty and yet need to rely especially on God's sovereignty and being the church that God asks us to be in the world? The first response that we should have is to pray. And I don't and I and I don't want to indict our services or the people in them or myself. But I'm going to be very blunt for a moment, so just prepare yourself. And I don't mean, and, and, and I have failed in this, in being a part of the worship service planning, by not emphasizing this in my time here. Prayer should not be the thing that we tack on at the end or the beginning or the middle of this, and just part of a bigger prayer, part of, the, of, of a prayer that addresses 90 other things. Especially when there are things that are affecting us and affecting our world 
which there are always things. It's a matter of how important they are to us at, every, at any given moment. Prayer should be first and foremost in center. It should be the main response that the church gives. But unfortunately, I think that so many people, even Christians, relegated as something that is necessary, but not of something that is quote-unquote effective or important. It should be the main response that we have, and it should never be something we do, oh yeah, and we should, we should, we should form whole services around praying for certain things, for certain people, for certain events, for certain, prayer is one of the integral tools, weapons, foundations we have as kingdom people integral, foundational, powerful tools we have. And here are three reasons why that prayer should be our main job, our main vocation when it comes to not only these stressful times, but our main job in this world. Number one, prayer begins the conversation with God about whatever it is that we bring to him. And we see this actually in the beginning of the Lord's Prayer in which Jesus says, Our Father in heaven. Now, I hopefully many of us know this. Whenever we have stuff going on in our lives, whenever we're stressed, whenever we have celebrations, whenever we have trouble, whenever we have sorrow, whenever we have excitement, whenever we have joy, what's the first thing we want to do? We want to tell someone about it. We want to talk about it with someone. Whenever we have a problem, whenever there's something going on, what's one of the first things that we want to do? Hopefully one of the first things we can do. If you're married, you want to talk to your spouse. If you're, if sometimes you, even if you, even if you're married, you want to talk to your mom or your dad. You want to talk to someone you trust. You want to talk to someone who cares. You want to talk to someone who can help. You want to talk to someone who is with you, living life with you together. And Jesus does this very same thing. Our Father in heaven, our Father relationship who is above everything, and more important than anything, hallowed be your name. Father, listen to what I have to say. We cannot partner with God until we're willing to talk with Him and engage with Him about whatever it is He would like us to partner with Him for. And vice versa. We cannot partner with God unless we tell him and talk to him about whatever it is we want to him to partner with us for. And vice versa. It's a relationship. Too often we sit back and go, I wonder what God is going to do about this. God, do something about that. And maybe that's not a bad thing. But this is why prayer is so important that it begins the conversation. It begins the dialogue of partnership. It begins the dialogue of God being made known in the world. It begins the dialogue of God's people being God's people. Not just in the sense of God, go do something, but God. Just like you come and say, Mom, or my dear wife, we need to talk about this and figure it out. So we approach God. At least we should. Number two, and I messed up and I put the third one on there, so you're welcome for those who take notes. Number two, it refocuses and refreshes our hearts and minds towards the subject of prayer. Let's go back to the text for a minute. The text says, Your kingdom come. 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the thing is, we shouldn't just be praying this prayer or anything like it. We shouldn't just be praying like this whenever there's times of trouble, whenever there's times of, of craziness or pandemics. We should be praying like this all the time because first and foremost, what we need to remember is that our job is not to just do whatever and do our will, but our job is to bring God's will the heavenly will to earth. Be a part of that. And we pray that God's will, your kingdom, your will be done on earth as it is wherever you are. God's, your will be done in our space as well as your space. So whenever we bring life, but whenever we bring something especially which is troubling us and such on the foundation of that relationship, which hopefully we built other 360-something days of the year, it refocuses and refreshes, and it, we begin to be able to see and coax out things that we may not have been able to see before. Let's take one that I'm just going to love talking about. Let's take politics, for example. Right now, we're so divided, and election year's coming up, people within parties and churches are so completely... I'm not talking about praying, God, get my candidate in or get my policy done. Have we ever just lifted up the fact that politics causes division, that politics is so divisive, that it seems like there's no right or wrong answer? What prayer does in the context of talking about it is that it refocuses our hearts to see things that maybe we didn't before. It refreshes ourselves in ways that simply being bombarded with the trouble or the issue can't. We all know this. We talk to someone and we were talking and dialoguing and they say, well, what about this? And we go, I've never thought about that before. Prayer is a conversation with God that does that for us and does that with us and does that for each other. We begin to see perhaps the solutions, the injustices, the nuances, the things that we wouldn't otherwise, when we begin to talk about it with our Father who is above all and can see things so much better than we can, it just makes sense. But do we treat it like that, church? We begin to see things that we never really paid attention to. We begin to open a dialogue and let the Spirit prick our hearts in ways that we might not have been open to before. And that's important when mitigating these issues. This is really important, actually. This point, jumping off into next week, and I don't want to do that again. Point number three. <laughs> point number three. Is that prayer initiates God's work in and through us. Remember the third point from last week, that God always works in partnership with and through his people. Well, prayer is what really initiates, what really kickstarts, maybe, Although we could all, we could argue that maybe we shouldn't even need a kickstart. We should, certainly God will do that. We'll have something laid in our hearts and minds as a church or as a, as a body, and we're like, "Oh, I got to do that." But maybe better is that we have such a continual dialogue that we become aware of these opportunities, aware of these things, not just as an individual Christian, but as a communal body. This is why it's so important that we do this as a body, church. Maybe as a body, we become aware of like, hey, we need to do this whenever people of the church say we feel drawn towards this or we feel led towards this or this is an opportunity we need to go by. We should listen to that if it's done through prayer, intentional, penitent prayer. Did you notice actually, let's see if I have the, the slide up over here again. Nope, I did not. Let me go back a little bit. Did you notice, this is not really part of the sermon, but I can't, I can't let this go. 
Uh, and I'm running, I'm running on time. Sorry, no oh, well. Do we notice that the emphasis of this prayer is not just on something every once in a while, but the emphasis is actually daily. We know about the daily bread bit, but the conjunctions that are there in Greek link forgiveness, asking for forgiveness, asking to be forgiving and merciful, and le and asking for God's deliverance and safety are all linked up into what we do daily. Give us this day our daily bread and forgiveness and being forgiving and not in temptation, but delivering us from evil. Those are all linked in that sentence to something we ought to do daily. What's the whole point of this sermon? Well, the whole point is this, and if it didn't come through, hopefully you'll get it now. <laughs> the whole point is this. We must be in penitent prayer, intentional prayer, present prayer, at the place the world is in pain. Not just when the world is in pain, I would add, but about the things which pain the world and pain us as God's children. Now you may think, that's it? We knew that. Yeah. Don't worry. That's not all. That's not all by a long shot because how God has actually laid out this is supposed to work and what prayer does in the bigger picture, we'll get to. But I want to challenge us this week and maybe I should take the lead on Wednesdays and maybe even next Sunday by following my own sermon. I challenge you this week, schedule out Schedule out some prayer time for wildfires, for COVID, for politics, for family issues, whatever is troubling, whatever is painting the world. And I invite you to do it while remembering, not because they're my points, but remembering these three things. A prayer begins the conversation, it refocuses and fresh, it refreshes and it initiates God's work in and through us. Don't pray unless you're willing to do something about it. <laughs> because God is ready to do something about it. What does it mean? If nothing else, you get nothing else from the sermon. What does it mean to be an end times church? It means that our main job, our main focus has to be prayer. Because prayer is the main vessel by which we do and God does through us nearly everything. Think about that for a minute. What if some of the things that we ask or want as a church is simply because not God's not acting about it, but because we haven't come in prayer, had the conversation where he can act in us, with us, for us. And maybe that's the best question to end with. This week, be thinking about what is a church, a congregation, of brothers and sisters from all over the world, do we need to be in penitent, intentional, and present prayer for? In addition to the wildfires, COVID, pain, suffering in the world, and God to be made known through us. Let's end with a prayer. 
Holy Father, these words are incompetent compared to you. I pray that even though they are what they are, that you can use them, use your power through them to spur us to be like your people, to be the people that you want us to be, to be the people we can be. And if nothing else, help begin this journey of realizing a deeper and more fuller understanding of what prayer is and how it is integral to who we are as Christians, both as Christians as being as well as being Christians in the world. We once again lift up to you the wildfires and the people affected by them. We lift up to you those who have been affected by COVID and our economy and our mental health. And we ask that you lead us and guide us in ways of being your people, to let people see you through whatever you would have us do. We pray for those open doors and those obvious opportunities to be your people. We pray, God, that you lead us and make us the church that you want us to be, regardless of that of what that means for us, of our comfort or our, our plans. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and in your church. And we pray that we take seriously our main vocation, our main job, to be a praying people that invokes you as well as your people to act and be who you want us to be. We lift these things up in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace to you all this week.